marriage in focus because once we get into this, you're going to find that Jesus is not speaking about divorce nearly so much as he's speaking about marriage. Um, but this next section does force us to come face to face with an unlovely and unwelcome topic, and that subject is divorce. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight is Jesus' discourse on divorce. Mark chapter 10, verse number 1. And he rose from thence and cometh unto the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resorted unto him again. And as he was one, or as he was known, he taught them again. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses, by the way, When somebody comes to you with a disingenuous question, this is a wonderful technique to use. Ask them a question that forces them to take on the issue and not you. Jesus used this frequently, frequently. What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered or allowed to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, so that they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, I labored this afternoon as to how to approach this and what the best way to do this was in this regard. How much should I say and how much should I leave out? And what I've determined to do is I've split this message into two. And next week we're going to get into the context. We're going to get into the Jewish views of marriage and divorce. We're going to get into the Roman culture. We're going to get into what this bill of divorcement meant for a woman in that society. We're going to talk about all of that, and we're going to look at the text more closely and see exactly what it says and what Jesus meant in what he said. But tonight what I want to do is I want to kind of do a, an introductory message to make sure that, that we're all on the same on the same footing as to how we're going to approach this or any controversial subject. And divorce is a controversial subject. And there are a lot of varying views. Is it even important that we spend this much time? I believe it is. I'm happy to report to you that for years and years and years, we were were told by preachers, well-meaning preachers, who were told the same thing, that in America, half of all marriages end in divorce, even among Christians. I'm happy to report to you that the number amongst professing evangelical Christians is not that high. I'm thankful for that. But according to Barna Research, which is a trustworthy, um, conservative, Christian-based research company, one-third of Christians will get divorced, which is still entirely too high still entirely too high. Now, the national average does seem to be closer to 50%. But amongst evangelicals, thankfully, it is less. But one-third still, still too high. Incidentally, if somebody is divorced, they statistically are twice as likely to be divorced again. And that's just, that's, that's not making, I'm not making a judgment. That's numbers. That's numbers. 
It's a difficult subject to be sure, but one that we have to broach and we've got to wrestle with a predictable and oft asked question. And here's the question that's on people's minds. Does the Bible allow for divorce and remarriage? And by the way, that's two questions. Does the Bible allow for divorce? And if it does, does it allow for remarriage? And if so, what are the conditions? And that's, that's a fair grouping of questions. I have no issue with the questions. Here's the issue I have is when you're asked by somebody about this subject and it's pretty evident they're trying to find a loophole to get out of their marriage. Remember, why we ask a question is as important as the questions we're asking. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a booze. Periodically, I'll have a discussion with somebody over whether or not the Bible allows for for drinking alcohol. And, And not in every case, but in almost every case, it's somebody looking for something in the Scripture that allows them to get completely sauced. Usually, that's what it is. And it goes back to that old saying that I've heard for a long time now. If only we were as adamant about the things that we know the Bible commands as we are about what we hope it allows. What's interesting to me is these folks that are looking for loopholes in Scripture aren't nearly so quick to defend soul winning. They aren't nearly so quick to defend the inerrancy of Scripture. They aren't nearly so quick to defend faithful attendance to God's house. But they'll fight you tooth and nail over booze. Amen, preacher. He's coming back from vacation like this? I don't have time for sugar sticks anymore. I got got inspired by a 77-year-old pastor in New Jersey. Now, you understand New Jersey is a much more liberal state than ours, and that's saying something. And that man just ripped face up there on Sunday morning. I'm like, well, have at it, sir. I was inspired. Now, that's the question before us. Does the Bible allow for divorce and remarriage? And if so, what are the conditions? Now, the chances are, in a crowd this size, there's some of us that already think we have an idea as to what the answer to that is. And that's okay. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we move into this tonight and, Lord willing, next week, as we move into this, there's three things that I want us to remember, okay? (coughs) Wherever we come out of on the other side of this thing, there's three things I want us to remember. Here's number one. You ready? Good Christians disagree. Now, obviously, if the Bible is just black and white, cut and dry, on something we don't have room to disagree but there are some areas in scripture in which there is at least on the surface some room for disagreement and that's okay i have acts 15 there as a as a reference you remember paul and barnabas the old issue of john mark should we take him should we not paul said absolutely not barnabas said absolutely they disagreed who was right they both were john mark had put himself in a position that Paul had some good points. And Barnabas had some good points. And they disagreed. And if you look through Scripture and if you look anecdotally at historical record, both Paul and Barnabas had successful ministries beyond that, only separately. So God used them both. See, God used them both. Good Christians can disagree. And, and it's, it's a very good chance that at the end of this, this couple of messages that 
some of us will disagree with some of the others over the issue, and that's okay. That's okay. I know we independent Baptists. We just, we just, we, we, nope, nope. It's the only way. And in some cases, that's evident. But some things we can see differently, and it's okay. You know? Number two, good Christians have been divorced. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that. It talks about people that got saved and their unmarried spouses didn't want to go with them. One one of many examples of that kind of setup. Good Christians have been divorced. Even Christians face this tragedy, and it is a tragedy. I want to say this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. In the years that I've been saved, and particularly in the 16 years of pastoring, some of the finest Christians I've ever known have been people that have been divorced. I have no room, I have no tolerance for this mindset that treats people that are divorced as second-class Christians. I got no use for that. None whatsoever. Isn't it an amazing thing in many of our churches? Somebody gets delivered out of drug addiction and we celebrate. Hallelujah, God good. Somebody gets delivered out of alcoholism and they celebrate. Hallelujah, isn't God good? Somebody gets the victory after coming out of a messy divorce and we shun them. God's not in that, y'all. Can I tell you something? Even after a messy divorce, hallelujah, God's still good. Yeah. Now I'm going to go ahead and give you one early opportunity for disagreement. But my understanding of Scripture... By my understanding of Scripture, there's only two things in the Bible that divorce has anything to do with the matter of your Christian service. There, there are people that have come up their whole Christian lives with the idea that because they're divorced, regardless of the reason, that because they're divorced, they can't serve in their local church. Let me tell you something. As I understand Scripture, there's only two things a divorced man can't do. That's be a pastor and be a deacon. And there's even some people that disagree on that, and they do so honestly and reasonably, and that's okay. But my understanding of Scripture is the pastor and the deacon both have to be the husband of one wife. Okay? A divorced man can still be a preacher, an evangelist, Sunday school teacher, and right on down the line. And as far as ladies, there's nothing that divorce precludes you from or excludes you from, nothing. This idea that divorce is this unpardonable sin that ends your ability to be used of God is just not scriptural. It's just not. And so as we get into this, I need you to understand this. I need you to understand this, and I need you to believe it. Whatever way we come out on this thing, I am keenly aware that many people in our church have been married more than once. I know that but I cannot fail to declare the whole counsel of God for fear of hurting somebody's feelings. But as I do so, I do so with the utmost respect and sympathy, and and, and my heart goes out to people that have been through that, but for God's grace, I could go through that, and I know that. So I, I hope you don't think that I'm approaching this lightly. I am not. But if 
But if I ever look at a passage of Scripture and say, you know what, I don't want to preach that, even though that's what God's put on my plate, I don't want to preach that because I don't want to offend anybody, then you need to fire me. Because that's my job. But I do so with the utmost care and, and, and endeavoring to, to be Christ-like in my delivery as well as in my doctrine. And I hope you know me well enough to know that's my heart. I can tell you this, of those that I know have been married before, there's not a one of you that I can ever have any recollection of looking at you in any way and saying to myself, boy, they're such great Christians. Ah, I just I hate they're divorced. It doesn't enter into my thinking. It doesn't enter my thinking any more than, oh, if only they didn't have gray hair. If only, if only they didn't, you know, if only they didn't wear glasses. That, that, that's, that's how foreign it is to my thinking, you know? Now you see why I split this thing? I can't take it all on in one night. All right. So good Christians disagree. Good Christians have been divorced. Now this one, I got to be honest with you, this one's more on you than on me, okay? Good Christians avoid offense. If I'm the Christian that I ought to be, I'm not looking for ways and reasons to be offended. What Psalm 119, 165 say? Great peace of they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. So if at the end of this thing, you sit there and you say, well, he's going easy on divorced people. Or you say, well, he don't like divorced people. Or whatever way you think I'm coming down on it, and you leave here offended, that's on you. That's not on me. Because good Christians avoid offense. If we disagree, we've got to squelch the urge to make it personal. Can I tell you what I've learned personally? If something I hear preached is personal, that's usually the Holy Spirit working on me. (laughs) If we mutually love God's word, we learn to disagree agreeably. I'll tell you a secret. Me and Brother Davies don't agree on everything. You say, like what? I don't really know that I can put my finger on it because we don't really talk about it. But I've been around him and I know him well enough to know that we do things differently and that's okay. And we get along, I think. (laughs) So. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you a, a template something that we can use, not just for this issue, but every time, every time we come to something in Scripture that's, you know, and we're, we're nervous about it, it's got a lot of room for disagreement, it's got a lot of room for, oh, kind of feeling, you know. I want to give us a template to use that I think will work here and everywhere else. No matter what you face in life, You've got three things to consider. Number one, God's ideal. God has an ideal. His standard of perfection that we're all striving to meet. That's God's ideal. Okay? But then there's man's real. And what am I saying? God's ideal is there. But where do we live? In man's real. 
you know. Brother Davies, it's God's ideal that my life be completely devoid of pride. Where do I live? Sometimes I'm closer than others, but I live in the real. So wait a minute, if God's ideal and our real, then, then what brings that together? What, what fixes that? The Christ who heals. Can, can I illustrate it to you with one verse? How about 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1? My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Did you know that all three of those are in that verse? Watch. God's ideal. My little children, I write these unto you that ye sin not. What is God's ideal? That ye sin not. How are we doing? God's ideal is that I never sin. God's ideal is that Brother Locklear back there, he never sins. And God's ideal is that Brother Cavanus never sins. And Brother Nichols never sins. And whoever else is hiding up there never sins. And Brother French never sins. And everybody in between us, his ideal is that we never sin. How are we doing? If any man sin. That's man's real. God doesn't want us to sin. But we will. That's our real. Right? We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. See, I don't make his ideal. I don't come anywhere close to his ideal. My real is so short of his ideal, it's pathetic. That's why I have a Christ who heals. So let's real quickly plug that into the marriage and divorce issue. What's God's ideal? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's his ideal. But there's a whole lot of people that they're real. Doesn't live up to that ideal, does it? So what do you need? A Christ who heals. <laughs> See? And that's the template that we're going to use throughout this passage. And really through anything like this that we approach. Because can you see that it's, it's going to work for about anything? I'm going to sit this down for a second. I'm just going to talk to you for a minute. I'm an independent Baptist. And independent Baptists are really, really good at telling people what God's ideal is. Holiness. By the way, that is the ideal. Holiness, sure. And we're pretty good at telling people about the Christ who heals. But let me tell you what a lot of us are really bad at. 
we're really bad at navigating and transposing through the reels. <laughs> These churches that we visited, I was struck by just the sense of unity in all of them. They seemed so happy to be with one another, whether it was the little church plant in Easton, Mass, or, or, or in, uh, or in uh, Maine, wherever that place was, and, uh, and then, um, or, or whether it was Berlin, New Jersey, the big thousand-person church. It just seemed like everybody was happy to be there. And man, it was just wonderful worship in all of those churches, and the messages were spot on. Everything seemed perfect, but can I tell you, I've been around long enough to know those churches got problems just like ours does. And what we saw was what looked like the ideal, but no, people live in the reels. I want to be the ideal pastor, but I'm much more of a real pastor. Because the fact is, sometimes I have a sorry attitude. And sometimes I'm lazy. And sometimes I get angry. And sometimes my mind wanders where it shouldn't go. And see, these are all true of me, and you know what? It's all true of you, too. But that Christ who heals, we need to learn to take him to people that are real. It's okay to have a church full of people that don't know the right thing to say or the right way to act or the right way to dress or the right way to take care of themselves as Christians and all that. That's okay because Jesus came to die for the real. Why? that he might make them ideal. Because one day, now I should be getting closer as I grow in my faith, but one day, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, I'm going to go from real to ideal. I'm kind of feeling like I wasted this little thing on, that could be its own message. Real, ideal, and the one who heals. Man, that'll preach. I'm going to have to go somewhere else and preach it. (laughs) But you know I don't preach out much, and there's two reasons for that. One is because as a pastor, I want to stay close to home and be available to my people. The other is that nobody's really asking me to preach out. (laughs) So as we approach this subject of marriage and divorce, we must do it through that lens, through that template. The ideal... The real and the Christ who heals. Now, I'll give you, when we get into the text, I'll go ahead and give you the ideal because that one's easy. That's the easiest part of the whole message, the ideal. Okay. Now, I want to give you a danger, something we've got to be real careful about. Our greatest danger in this kind of a study, but also in studies like it, is threefold. The first is this, that we form what we believe. Can I use the word Doctrine that we form our doctrine based on feelings? Well, Pastor, this is what I think about divorce because I feel you can't form your doctrine on feelings. You can't. 
But, but he was such a loser and she was so unhappy. That may be true. He may have been a loser. He, she may have been unhappy. But that's feelings and that should not form our doctrine in any way, shape, or form. Where do we feel this heart of ours? Brother Davies loves it when he asks me my opinion about something and I tell him to follow his heart because he knows I'm joking, but it's all I give him. Follow your heart on that. Because Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? My feelings are not trustworthy. I hope that y'all are glad we're back. I'm confident you're glad Crystal and the kids are back. I hope you're glad all four of us are back. But can I confess to you my feelings as that last day on the lake drew closer? I fleetingly thought I could live here in this cabin on this lake. Yeah, we don't have room for anything here but I could live here. I love it. I pulled one, one large mouth bass, the only one in the whole lake. I got him. I got him. And had to throw him back because I didn't have a license. <laughs> but I had to try the reel out. It was clear as rod. I had to make sure it worked okay. And uh, I loved it. That's feelings. Feelings change. Can, can I be honest with you? I'm happy to be back. I enjoyed myself there, but I'm in my own bed now. And I'm in familiar surroundings. I'm happy to be back. I'm glad to be off the road. It's good. My feelings changed. See? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not under thine own understanding. He said, He didn't just say, Don't follow your own understanding, don't even lean to it. In all thy ways, acknowledge Him and He'll direct thy paths. Right? So the first danger is that we form our, our view of, of divorce. Now let's talk about this study in particular, but this, this works for all of them. Our view of divorce and remarriage is based on our feelings. That's dangerous. How about this? Based on experience. I've been through this. Therefore, I feel this way about it. Now, let's pull away from divorce, and let's just think of that in a bigger viewpoint. Just because you've been through something doesn't mean you understand it correctly. I played high school baseball. It doesn't mean I was good. Just because it's an experience, just because it's something I've been through, doesn't mean that I'm an authority on it, right? We've got to be careful about that. Twice in Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25, there's a way which seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. This is what I've experienced. And by the way, that's closely related to feelings. But then here's a third one. Here's a third one. That we form our doctrine through feelings, through experience, or through anecdote or exception. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, they did it, and everything worked out okay for them, so it must be fine. 
That's an exception, not the rule. Once again, I'm not making any commentary on why people go through it. I'm not trying to be at all unfeeling. I hope you know me well enough to know this, but you can't look at other people's experiences and the anecdotal evidence of them and say because it worked that way for them that everything's good for you. Let's broaden it again. Well, my best friend in high school they, they, they graduated from high school and they lived like the devil for 20 years and then God got a hold of them and now they're doing great. So it seems to me that it's okay to live like the devil for 20 years and then you, you, you know as well as I do, that's not usually how it works. That's an exception, not the rule. That's anecdotal and it's not trustworthy. Now I'm going to read you a scripture and let me, let me give you a, a little bit of a preemptive statement here I'm not saying that divorced people are evil or wicked I want you to hear the I want you to hear the verse and the principle of the verse so so listen to the verse and 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 don't don't let it enter into the thinking of what we're talking about Ecclesiastes 8.11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The point of that verse is this, we watch people do wrong and do wrong and do wrong and do wrong and nothing ever happens to them and we think, oh, well then everything must be okay. And the ones that are doing it are like, oh, well nothing's happened to me so I must be doing okay. And then you find out in the next verse, oh no, something's coming. Well, let's move that back into our discussion. You watch somebody move on from this marriage to this marriage to this marriage to this marriage, and at the end of it, they seem to be doing fine. You say, well, it must be fine then. No, that's not at all what it means. Man, I hope I'm coming across the way I want to tonight. Here's the point. Whether it's studying divorce and remarriage, whether it's studying any issue that we face as human beings, we must not trust our feelings. We must not, must not trust experience. We know, must not trust anecdote and exception. Only God's word should form our doctrine. What I believe about anything and everything should be just from God's word and no more. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, first off the bat, doctrine, for a proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You've heard this many times before. Doctrine, what's right? Reproof, what's wrong? Correction, how to get things right. Instruction in righteousness, how to keep things right. That covers about everything, doesn't it? What's right, what's wrong, how to get things right, how to keep things right. What does it say is the source for everything you need for all of that? Scripture. But here's where we get into trouble. Here's why you have churches out there that are woke. Because people started following their feelings and their experiences and anecdotal and exceptional evidence instead of the word of God. I took a picture in Providence, Rhode Island of the very first Baptist church in America. It was started by a man named Roger Williams who also founded that area the very first baptist church in america i was determined that since we were going through and since Rhode Island is only about as big as this auditorium i wanted to i wanted to see it 
And so we went there. And it's, it's a beautiful building. It's obviously not the first building they met in, but in the 1700s, they built this building on the site, and, and it's beautiful. And being a little bit of a history buff, I appreciate Roger Williams and the stand that he took and all of that. You know, I'm a Baptist. Of course I do. It's still an active church. They still meet there. And they have, like many Baptist churches, they have a sign out front, and they have an area on that sign that you can put messages And they had one on this one. America's oldest Baptist church, founded by Roger Williams, and in the area where you put the sign, it said this. God is non-binary. They're basically saying he's transgender. What happened to that church? Somewhere along the line, they started getting their doctrine from their feelings and from their experiences and from anecdotes and exceptions, and they stopped reading the Word of God. We walked the Freedom Trail in Boston, which if you ever have an opportunity to do that, I fully recommend you do it. And when you do, stop it. What's the name of that pizza place? Anyway, there's a pizza place. When you order a slice, just know that it's about that big. It's wonderful. All of these old churches. The old North Church where Paul Revere saw the lan- lanterns and the, you know, the British are coming. These old churches all over Boston Many of them, most of them are still active worshiping, worshiping churches. And nearly every one of them had the pride flag hanging on it. Now let me remind you, for those that may be watching, those folks that are involved in the LGBTQ plus group, I don't hate them. Any one of them are welcome to come here and listen to the Word of God being preached and taught as long as they come with a heart that wants to hear and is not going to cause problems. Anybody's welcome here. Anybody. But I cannot and will not affirm any of that. Can't. Won't. And will not hang their flag here. The only banner we hang here is blood washed. That's what happens. You say, well, Andy, are you, are you saying that if, if we approach this through our feelings and our experience, I'm not saying that that's what will happen to us immediately, but if that becomes our mode of operation around here, that we start approaching things based on our feelings and our experiences and anecdotes and all of that, over time, yeah, we'll get to where we'll hang a pride flag because we've, we've, we've gone away from the Word of God. The only source for doctrine for us must be God's Word. I've, I've kind of stepped away from that phrase. It's our final, final, final authority for faith and practice. No, sir, it's my only authority for faith and practice. My only authority. I don't have time to dig any other stuff. It's my only authority for faith and practice. If it's in the Bible, we do it. If it's not, we don't. It's pretty simple, isn't it? <clears throat> okay. So that was the introduction. <laughs> 
Aren't you glad I split this? So let's go to Mark chapter 10. Jesus' discourse on divorce. Don't worry. We're not going to get into it tonight. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he rose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resorted unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. This was, this was a disingenuous question. By the way, the Pharisees didn't agree on this subject either. He had two schools of thought. One was a very conservative school, and one was a very liberal school. One favored divorce for only one reason, and the other pretty much lets you divorce a woman for about anything, including, but not limited to, burning one's food. I can, that's documented. Yeah. Now, we, we, we live, laugh at that and snicker at that, but it's just as wrong for us to approach this with the wrong motive as it would be them. When we approach the Bible, I'm going to find something that proves what I think. That's pharisaical. But it's easy to do, isn't it? Can I tell you what one of the hardest things for me has been in preparing for these messages? God, help me to throw away everything I've been taught up to this point and show me from your word what your word actually teaches. Because I have got 47 years worth of tradition bearing down on me. And I've got to make sure that I rightly divide the word of truth. And sometimes that means, have you ever had this happen to you, especially those that preach and teach? You're studying and you realize, good night, the way I've interpreted this passage all this time, I've been wrong. And it's a shame because you've got messages that really preach good. And you've got to chuck them because they're no good anymore. They never were. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now verses 6 through 9 is the easy part. This is God's ideal. And in my view, there's no room for disagreement here. God's ideal has always been one man, one woman for one lifetime. That's always been his ideal. Okay, look what he says. And by the way, this harkens back to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus takes it up a notch. You're asking me, you're asking me what, um, what, what is grounds for divorce and what's allowable for divorce. Let me tell you God's view of marriage. Just like in Matthew chapter 5, adultery is not when you commit adultery with somebody, you look at them with your eyes and lust in your heart, you've already committed. Jesus takes it up a notch. And that's what he does here. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time on actually talking about divorce. He talks about God's ideal for marriage. Can I tell you something that I really appreciate? And I'm watching the time and ignoring it. I've been gone a while. Um, there's, there's a preacher we know. In fact, we saw him two days ago, yesterday, whatever it was, two days ago. 
and uh, he performed a wedding for one of our family members. And in the wedding, he handed them a dictionary. And he said, here's your dictionary. And people are like, what is he doing? Give him a dictionary. He says, here's what I've done. I've already taken the liberty of finding the page with the word divorce on it and ripped it out for you. I realize there's folks that have been through this and God has been gracious and God has healed and they are moving forward for God, enjoying a happy marriage now and thank God for that. But anytime I do premarital counseling, anytime I sit down with a young couple that wants to get married, I encourage them, don't you ever even let the word be spoken in your home. It is not an option for you. Kill each other, fine. But do not consider divorce. See, and this is the thing, Aaron, we get so careful. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I can't step back and act like marriage isn't an important thing. It's very important. It pictures the, it pictures the salvation relationship between Christ and his church. We got to get it right. Verse uh, six, but from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. Boy, that sounds simple enough, doesn't it? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Cleave is one of those interesting words. It can mean its opposite. Cleave can mean to join or cleave can mean to cut asunder. You ever seen a knife that was a cleaver? It can mean both. In this case, it means, literally means to weld. And if it's welded correctly, you don't split that apart, do you? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, let's keep reading. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. By the way, verse number 12 is the first time it's ever been said a woman shall put away her husband. That's not how Jewish society worked. A woman did not have the power to divorce her husband. Jesus said that on purpose to shake the Pharisees up a little bit. (laughs) Anybody that says that Christianity limits women, oh no, it frees them. Now, if that's all we had to go on, then, then the, the message is over. It's pretty clear what he says. That's that. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? <laughs> but then you got that whole comparing Scripture with Scripture thing. We, we read Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. He saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. Okay. And if a woman should put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So that's pretty clear right there that, that Jesus makes two very clear statements regarding divorce and remarriage. All right, so we're all good, right? <laughs> then there's Matthew. The same passage in Matthew adds just a handful of words. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. And shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, 
doth commit adultery. So when you, when you take Matthew's account and put it alongside Mark's, you find out that there is what is being called an exception clause. I would offer to you that if the Bible allows for divorce, in any cases, it would be two cases. Fornication, which is, as I understand it, a deep-seated habitual sexual infidelity. Okay? Then in 1 Corinthians 7, there seems to be a teaching that divorce is allowable for abandonment. Now, next week we're going to dig into all this. So bring your helmets, and I'll bring mine. Can we be in agreement about this? We just want to know what God's Word says, right? That's all we want. And this is not meant to beat up on anybody that's been through this. I'm not Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I don't propose that people wear a scarlet D if you're up on your literature. Ms. Collins knows where I'm talking about, though. I don't propose that at all. It's my job to tell you what the Bible teaches, and Matthew or Mark 10 comes after Mark 9. And we're going to dig into what's he talking about there. And we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to talk about the exception clause, and we're going to talk about culturally what it meant for a Jew, and we're going to talk about all those things. And then I'm going to beg and plead for the Holy Spirit to make it clear to all of us what we're supposed to do with that. Now, let me leave you with some stuff. And by the way, next week's part two. Let me leave you with some stuff here. And you you can go ahead and pack up whatever you want to do. Which would you rather have? A pastor who has not fully committed to a position but is willing to accept one for the sake of looking like he knows what he's talking about or somebody that's going to be honest with you and tell you, I fully recognize that wherever I come down on this thing, I could be wrong. Well, that lacks conviction. Well, I'm not going to have conviction where I don't yet have conviction. And there are some things in the Bible that I confess to you, I don't quite know what the Bible teaches about it. In this particular case, I feel like I do, but I also recognize that I could be wrong. kind of want to jump ahead but I'm not going to if I can help it so we're going to gather and we're going to study the Bible together and we're going to try to determine what the Lord's telling us and we may have this great epiphany next Wednesday night and all of us know exactly what the Bible's teaching about this subject and we all leave here completely in agreement don't hold your breath but I want to give you the tools that you need to study the word to reach out to the Holy Spirit, speak to me, show me what it is. And then if we come away from that disagreeing, so be it. It's okay. It really is. Because disagreement on this or any subject of its its ilk does not mean we have to love anybody any less. It doesn't mean we have to treat anybody any different. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. So... 
Anyway, we'll get into it next week. What's the Bible teach about divorce, particularly as it's given in Mark chapter 10? Here's what I know. Whoever you're married to right now, it's God's will you stay married. And it's all meant to be a picture of that wonderful marriage supper we're going to be at one day. And that's where I choose to focus.